prayer that we would want to know Jesus more as his people so that we rest in him more, so that we um, proclaim him more, and I pray that he would be pleased to enable us to know him more through his word as it's preached uh, this morning. It is, uh, man, I love um, just, just being here, gathering with you all. I love you, church, and it is, uh, I was just standing back there thinking of what a, what a privilege, it's a, it's a weight, it's a burden, but it's also a great privilege to have the opportunity to, um, to preach the word to you. The, the word is what, is what God uses to sustain us in our faith, to bring us home, and um, so it is, it is a privilege and a joy to be able to preach this morning. Uh, for those of you who are guests, my name is Nathan Smith, I'm one of three pastors here and uh, we're glad that you have joined us this morning. Today we are going to be in Psalm 15, so I would encourage you to open up um, either a physical copy of the Bible or an electronic copy, or if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one off the back tables and turn to Psalm 15. If you're using a physical Bible, it's going to be around the middle of the Bible. So Psalm 15, we are doing a series through... Uh, a number of psalms is going to take us through the end of the year, and then we'll be heading into Second Thessalonians in the new year. Um, and I, as I was preparing for this message this week, I did some extensive research on the topic of questions because this psalm starts out with questions. And by extensive research, I mean that I took my phone out and I went to the little Google bar and I typed in something about questions. And uh, what I discovered through this extensive research is that children between the ages of two and five ask about, on average, 40,000 questions. Now, I have no idea how reliable that number is. Some author put it in a book, so it's out there. Um, It may be, you know, that's on average, so you may have a child who asks 40,000 questions in a day. Or it might feel like that as a parent, um, but it is, it is for sure that kids in that age range ask a lot of questions, and for those of us who have the task of answering those questions, that can sometimes wear us down a little bit. <clears throat> um, it is uh, a great privilege, actually, to be able to answer those kind of questions. It's, um, you know, really our kids are like exalting us, like as the source, the font of all knowledge. They just come to us with all these questions. Um, But it does wear us down. However, the good news is that we serve a God who is a good, good father. And we can come to him with our questions over and over again. And he, he's not worn down by those questions. He actually invites them. And he gives us answers to these questions in his word. And we see David, who wrote this psalm, uh, Psalm 15, the header, it, it starts letting us know that David wrote this psalm, and David begins with asking God this question. So verse 1 says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And so I was wondering this week, what prompted David to ask this question? Um, and a little background and detail into what he's actually asking here is helpful. The word that's translated tent here is the same word that if you're here for our study through Exodus, it's the same word that's translated tabernacle all throughout Exodus. 
And we know from that long study of the tabernacle that the tabernacle was where the manifest presence of God would dwell among his people. And when David refers to the holy hill here, he's referring to the temple mount in Jerusalem where the temple would be built. And when it was built, the presence of God would be made known, manifest there, that God would make it known in that place that he was dwelling among his people. And that was where they would come to worship God, to draw near to the presence of God. And those things, the tabernacle and the temple, as we looked at throughout uh, Exodus, as, as we studied those things, those were pointing towards this ultimate hope that the people of God have always had of dwelling with God forever in a new creation, redeemed, free from all sin, perfect joy and peace. That's, that's what those things were pointing to. And, and we can see here um, that David knows, what, however God answers his question here, he knows that the answer is going to be coming from the grace of God, even in the words that he uses to ask this question. He says, who can sojourn in your tent? And a sojourner is um, it's a, a foreigner who has taken up permanent residence. So it's like a resident alien who is, uh, it's a sojourner, someone who's graciously invited in to be a longtime permanent guest in a place. So a, a sojourner is welcomed in. They're allowed to stay only by the gracious generosity of their host. It's only by God's grace that we can enter into his presence. It's only by God's grace that we could stay in his presence and the, and the presence of God, again, is extremely significant, which David makes known in the next psalm that he writes in Psalm 16. You don't need to go there, but at the end of Psalm 16, David says that the presence of the Lord is where the people of God experience fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. That's what the presence of God is about. And so David is asking here, God, who is it that can legitimately hope to experience fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore in your presence. Or to put it another way, he's asking, what are the necessary marks of those who will live forever with God? What are the necessary marks of those who will live forever with God? So that's what he's asking. But again, why did David ask this? Was it just, you think, for his own evaluation? He's saying, God, do I have these characteristics? Do I have these marks? Am I one who is going to dwell with you forever? And that might be part of the motivation. It's, it is an essential question for each of us to ask. And we'll look at it from that perspective this morning some. But I don't think that's the main reason that David's asking this question. I think it's something else that prompted it. And when we think about why he may have been asking God this question... It's helpful to look at the context in which this psalm is set. To look at the surrounding psalms. Because not only did God inspire the words of this psalm, we believe that these, these are God's words that he inspired David to write down, but God also sovereignly orchestrated the, the, um, the compiling of the psalms, the way that they would be arranged, where the psalms would be placed within this book, this collection of Psalms, And when we look at where Psalm 15 is placed, realizing that God orchestrated this, we, we realize this, it's not accidental, it's not incidental, 
that Psalm 15 is set in the midst of a number of psalms where David is struggling with this reality that when he looks around, he sees many who claim to be among the people of God, many who claim to have the right to draw near to God, and yet they actually live in a way that opposes what God loves and opposes what God has commanded. So when we look at some of these psalms, psalms before and after Psalm 15, we see David struggling that there are those who are claiming to belong to God, but they spread slander. There are those who are attacking other believers with their lies, that some, some of these people have a double heart. In other words, David's saying these people, they lack integrity. They speak flattering words for their own gain. In Psalm 14, David says these people, they've, they've become corrupt. They don't do what's good and right. Psalm 17, David says they've, they've closed their heart to pity. They have no pity for people. They speak arrogantly, and yet, and yet many of these people claim to be among the people of God. <clears throat> and I think it's this. I think it's this disconnect between what people are claiming and the way that they live. I think that's what prompts David to ask God this question. He's looking around and going, God, are these really your people? Is this, is this really the, the people that, that you want to spend eternity with? Those who you want in your presence, is, are these really your people? Remind me, God, what does a person that you draw near and, and hold near and bless with your presence, what does that person look like? What are the marks of those, God, who will live forever with you? And I don't think he's asking that just for his own reassurance and peace, but I think he's asking for, for us, for future generations. In verse 1, he mentions the holy hill. That's where the temple would be built, but the temple wasn't built in David's lifetime. The temple was built by Solomon, David's son. And so I think David, the, the fact that he mentions the holy hill, where the temple would be in the future, I think it indicates that David wants to record God's answer to his question so that when David is gone, when believers struggle with this same question, that they're going to be comforted and challenged by the way that God answers. And so this morning, I wonder if you are among those who struggle with this question. God, who, who is really among your people? When you look around at the church today, the church in America, maybe the church worldwide, when you see prominent leaders in the church who are found to be spiritually abusive, found to be sexually abusive, when you see other leaders covering up for these abusive leaders, when you see whole networks of churches covering up for these kinds of leaders, when you see leaders in the church who are financially dishonest, greedy, or maybe it's not just that you're observing it out there, but that you've actually experienced some level of abuse within the church yourself. You've seen pastors who don't have any personal integrity, who live one way in private, but another publicly, or those who seem to just be swayed in their theology, in their ministry, philosophy by the winds of culture taking up the next new thing every five minutes in a, 
They claim that it's because they want to reach people for Jesus, but you're kind of thinking it really seems like you're just trying to build your own platform and do whatever's most popular right now. Or maybe it's not that you've been hurt by leaders within the church, but just by other people in the church. Maybe you've seen those who raise their hands and shout the, shout the loudest on Sunday morning and jump the highest, and yet they're spreading slander and gossip about you behind your back, tearing you down. Or maybe they've just discarded you as if you had no value. You see people in the church who claim to love Jesus but are greedy and dishonest in their dealings. A person who has a, a fish on their bumper, but in their business, they're known for cutting corners, for changing the wording in contracts for their own advantage. <clears throat> And maybe you look around at the church and, and you ask, as David does here, God, are these really your people? Uh, they, they say all the right things. They have good doctrine. They, they believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. They, they believe in, in a Trinitarian God. They believe in the virgin birth of Christ. They believe in all these things. And they claim to be serving you. But are these really the people that will enjoy peace in your presence for, for eternity? Are these the people that you want as your house guests forever? And maybe your faith is shaken at times because so many who claim the name of Jesus seem to be selfish and greedy and dishonest. And if you struggle with this, then you need to do as David does here in this psalm. You need to, to bring this to God. Ask God. Don't just wrestle with these things, struggle with these things, come to your own conclusions within your own mind, but ask God and realize that this isn't a new issue in the church. Uh, the theologian John Calvin, writing in the 1500s, he was commenting on this psalm, and he says this, As nothing is more common in the world than falsely to assume the name of God or to pretend to be his people and as a great part of men allow themselves to do this without any apprehension of the danger it involves David without stopping to speak to men addresses himself to God which he considers the better course so because nothing is more common in the world than for people to falsely assume. That means take on, claim the name of God, pretend to be his people. Because that's so common, David says, I'm not going to talk to people about it. I'm going to go right to God. That's the better course. And he intimates that if men assume the title of the people of God without doing so in deed and in truth, they gain nothing by their self-delusion. The sum is that hypocrites who occupy a place in the temple of God in vain pretend to be his people, for he acknowledges none as such, but those who follow after justice and uprightness during the whole course of their life. So if you find yourself shaken by the hypocrisy that you see in the church, 
Don't just wrestle with this based on your own thoughts, your own observations. Go to God with your questions and realize that uh, not only since the 1500s when John Calvin was around, but even from the earliest days of the church and even thousands of years before that when David was writing the Psalms, nothing has been more common in the world than for people to pretend to belong to God. This isn't a new issue. There's always been hypocrisy in the church, and we would be foolish to think that there is not hypocrisy in our own hearts. Hypocrisy is not only found in other people. And so, as we look at what God says in this psalm about the necessary marks of those who will live forever with him, we should be looking for those marks within ourselves. This is an opportunity for evaluation, for, as Paul says, testing ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And this should motivate us to seek to root out hypocrisy where we see it in our lives and where we see it in the church, and especially in this local church. If we see hypocrisy, God calls us to deal with it. And so let's look at this verse by verse and see these necessary characteristics of the person who can rightfully claim that they will live forever with God. Verse 2. As God gives this answer to David of his question, he says, first of all, the one who can dwell on my holy hill, dwell with me, is he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. <clears throat> and the first thing we need to understand about this verse as, is that walking blamelessly, it doesn't mean living a life of sinless perfection. I think that might be almost immediate assumption, blameless, I mean well, flawless, perfect. But the idea behind the Hebrew word that's translated blameless is complete or whole, having integrity. And in fact, because of that, the New American Standard Bible translated, translates this phrase as one who walks with integrity. And I think that's how we should understand the phrase. <clears throat> because integrity has to do with being a whole or integrated person. The inside matches the outside. And as the rest of this verse indicates, that means having integrity both in actions and in words. It means doing what is right according to God's standards, both in public and in private. Integrity is about a heart and life that aren't compartmentalized into private and public or religious and secular. For a person of integrity, there is no private life that's hidden away in a chat room online somewhere or some other dark corner of the internet. There's no putting on different personalities or masks or personas for, for church and one for work and one for home. That's not a person of integrity. And God is describing here someone who has integrity in their life and in their words, one who speaks truth in his heart and reveals that truth-oriented heart by the words that flow out. As Jesus said, it's, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Words don't just come out of, out of the blue. They come from what's in our heart. So if you have truth in your heart, you'll speak truth. If you have lies in your heart, though you may be able to conceal that for a while, it will inevitably 
flow out of your, those lying words will inevitably flow out of your lying heart. So integrity. Integrity is the first mark of one who will live forever with God. And that integrity of life or a lack of integrity will show up in the way that a person treats the people around them, which is what we see in verse 3. It says, someone who does not slander with his tongue does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And we see the words neighbor and friend. In response to that, you might ask the question that the expert in the law asked Jesus um, when Jesus was explaining that he should love his neighbor as himself. He said, oh, okay, yeah. I can do that, but who's my neighbor? And if you know the uh, story, you know the answer that Jesus gave him, which was basically to explain that your neighbor is anyone who crosses your path. Mr. Rogers got that right when he would address the whole world through the television as neighbor, as friend. And he got that from the Bible, of course. But that's how we should understand this, that our neighbor, our friend, the neighbor that we're not to do evil to, the friend that we're not to take a a reproach against, it's anyone who crosses our path. And in our day, we need to understand that our neighbor and our friend includes anyone who crosses our path online, right? Maybe you cross paths with people physically, but we cross paths with a whole lot more people online than we do physically, oftentimes But that being the case, how many who claim the name of Christ are quick to spread lies with the aim of tearing down someone's reputation? That's what slander is. It's spreading lies with the aim of tearing down someone's reputation. How many who would say, I'm a Christian, are quick to do that online? And taking up a reproach against someone in this context, it means to to bring a harsh criticism against someone, but with malicious intent. Sometimes a reproach, a harsh criticism is necessary, but the heart behind it matters. If you're bringing a harsh criticism, is it really for the purpose of bringing correction, bringing change, building someone up, or is it really just to tear someone down, to make yourself look better or feel better? But it's not just the heart that matters when bringing a harsh criticism, when bringing a reproach. It's also the direction of it. If you look through Scripture, you you do see godly examples of reproach. Jesus reproached false teachers. He reproached Pharisees. There is a godly way of bringing reproach, but you'll see that the reproach in those instances is brought directly to the individual being reproached. An example of this would be the Apostle Paul. He reproached Peter because Peter had uh, separated from the Gentiles. When there were other Jews that came around, Peter said, oh yeah, I don't, I don't eat with the Gentiles. I'm going to hang out with you guys. And Paul shows up and he directly reproaches Peter. He says, I reproached him to his face. Paul didn't send out a snarky tweet about Peter. 
Paul didn't write a nasty blog about Peter. He didn't sneak in with his camera and take some video and then send it out on Instagram, hashtag hypocrisy, Peter. He reproached him to his face. This is the godly way of bringing a reproach. Taking up a reproach against someone just by spewing negative comments about them across the internet is sinful. And it's a sin that's so commonplace today that most people don't even see it as a sin when they see it happening online or when they're participating in it themselves. It's so much just part of the ethos of online life, but it should not be so for those who would dwell with God. And to put this particular characteristic positively, we could say that one mark of those who will live forever with God is that they use their words for building up, not for tearing down. And God says this in Ephesians 4:29, "Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So do your words, both words from your mouth and words from your little internet-connected thumbs, do those words build up and give grace to those who hear? The next characteristic that we see of those who dwell in the presence of God is verse 4. It's one in whose eyes a vile person is despised. And that might raise some questions. Does God really want his people to despise anyone? Aren't Christians supposed to love everyone? So a bit of explanation is helpful here. First of all, to despise means to have the lowest opinion of. Compared to the opinion uh, that you hold for other people, one who is despised, they're on the bottom, bottom of the heap. But who is it that we should have that lowest opinion of? It's a vile person. And you would ask, okay, well, who might that be? The word translated vile here is normally in the Old Testament translated rejected. And when that word refers to people, it's most often talking about those who claim to belong to God, but whose lives demonstrate that they have actually rejected God. And since they have rejected God, God rejects them. So it would be in whose eyes one who has been rejected by God is thought little of is despised. A vile person is one whom God has rejected. And so in short, verse 4 means that God's people view others the way that God does. We don't bring our own standard in and evaluate people. We view people the way that God does. It, it means that we are to have a low opinion of those whom God has a low opinion of. But it's also important to remember the context that David has in mind here. He's not, he's not talking about people out in the world. 
He's talking about those who claim to be a part of God's people. He's talking about those who claim that they are near to God. And for us today, this means the church. And this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 when he said, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. God judges those outside. As Christians, we're called to look within the church, to look at ourselves, to look at our brothers and sisters and say, is is their life consistent with what they're professing? And one mark of those who will live forever with God is that we reject those whom God has rejected. So in other words, we don't make excuses for people just because they claim to be Christians, yet if their lives are demonstrating persistent, unrepentant, ungodliness, we don't excuse it and go, well, their, their sins are just, they're covered by the blood of Jesus, so they can act however they want. We don't cover up sin because someone is a well-known, beloved preacher. We don't cover up someone's sin because they're a good friend. We must be marked as those who reject those whom God has rejected. I want to give you a word of caution here, because this is not a call for us as Christians to be like the squirrels in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. You remember the little, as they're touring the chocolate factory, they go into one area and they have all these walnuts and the squirrels are um, occupying themselves with checking all the nuts to see which ones are good and which ones are bad. So they tap them, they listen to them, and then they can tell the good nuts from the bad nuts. The good nuts go in the good nut bin and the bad nuts go down into the garbage chute, right? Well, Veruca Salt, the spoiled girl, the... uh, the one who, after she wins the golden ticket, immediately says, well, in the Johnny Depp version of it, she immediately says, Daddy, I want another pony. The, the spoiled brat, she decides she wants a squirrel, right? So she heads down into the squirrel area because she wants a pet squirrel. The squirrels, they, uh, they attack her, basically. One climbs on her chest, taps on her head, listens. They all decide she's a bad nut. She goes down the garbage disposal. We are not called to be like those squirrels, just looking around. Someone messes up once, we tap on their head, we decide they're a bad nut and throw them down the garbage chute. That's not what God is calling us to do. It is true that some who claim the name of Jesus are bad nuts, But we must take care. One mistake doesn't necessarily indicate that someone is a bad nut. We all sin, right? Amen? If there's anything we can amen this morning, we can amen that we all sin. The bad nuts, though, are those who continue in a pattern of unrepentant sin. Those who are hardened in their ungodly ways who when we bring it to their attention, they reject it. When we lovingly say, brother or sister, you are in sin here. This is a pattern of sin in your life. When they reject it, when they scoff at it, when they ignore it, when they continue on in it, all the while still claiming to love 
Jesus. It's only after they have repeatedly demonstrated that they are unwilling to listen, stubbornly unwilling to listen, it's at that point that we are called to remove them from the church. But even in that, our aim is so that being thrown down into the garbage pit will so shake them up, so jar them, that they will see the error of their ways, that they will repent and they will turn to Christ. That's our aim in church discipline. But this is what God calls us to. And on the flip side of this, the next phrase of verse 4 says that we are to honor those who fear the Lord. That is, we are to honor those who respect the lordship of Jesus and who demonstrate that by the way that they live. In other words, we should honor those whose lives match up with what we see in Psalm 15. And the Apostle John, he's, he's essentially saying the same thing uh, in 1 John when he repeatedly says that a necessary mark of a true believer is that uh, he will love the brothers. And verse 4 also gives us another mark of those who dwell with God. That person is one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is someone who, who makes an oath and doesn't try to squirm out of it when they later realize, oh, this is going to cost me. They don't try to squirm out of it. This is, this is the builder who doesn't change a contract after he realizes, oh, lumber just went up by 8,000%, and I'm not going to make any money on this house. This is a salesman who keeps his word about what he's promised to a customer, even when his company tries to back out of the deal and he knows, I'm probably going to lose my job if I go ahead and push this through. It's, it's, again, having integrity. It's being willing to, to take on a loss if you've given your word regarding something. And verse 5 might throw us off a little bit, especially if you're a banker. This kind of person is one who does not put out his money at interest. Yikes! Thankfully, this is not about banking. This is about what God had commanded in the Old Testament regarding care of the poor. This is about not taking advantage of the poor. This is about when a, uh, a, a person, and, and specifically here we're talking about those within the people of God. So imagine uh, a brother or sister within the church. They, they lose their source of income. You know, this family's in need. <clears throat> they know you got some money. They come to you. They ask you for a loan to help them pay their mortgage. And you say, mm, sure, I'll give you a loan. And interest is going to be, you know, about 35% on that loan. They don't have a job. They're just going to go deeper and deeper into debt. You have imprisoned them by giving them that loan. That's that's what God is saying. Those, those who are welcome into his presence, they wouldn't do that. They would be generous. They would, they would make a loan. It's not, God's not necessarily saying you must give a gift every time, although I think that that's appropriate times. It, it might be that you give a loan 
but you're not charging an exorbitant amount of interest. This is about protecting those who are in need. It's, it's demonstrating a heart of generosity, not a heart of greed. That's what this is about. It goes on to say, this person does not take a bribe against the innocent. And I don't know if we have any judges here, um, but clearly this would apply to judges. But bribes come in different forms. What about the person who's tempted with the bribe of a promotion at work? If they'll just let the boss get by with a few lies. Maybe the boss is trying, just has it out for a coworker. Maybe has it out for one of their peers. And they want you to support them in a few little lies so they can get rid of this person. There's a bribe. You get to keep your job or maybe you get a promotion. If you'll just go along with these lies. Maybe in the, on the friendship level. You can be bribed with friendship. Well, just join me in these lies about this person over here because we'll be, we'll be BFFs if we gang up against this person together. Just tell a few lies. That's not a mark of one who draws near and dwells with God. And so verse 5 is really showing us that generosity and honesty are necessary marks of those who will dwell with God forever. And we come to this last phrase. It's God's encouraging conclusion to David's question of who can sojourn in your tent, who can dwell on your holy hill. He lays out these characteristics and he says, He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, why is this true? Why would God say the person who, who has these characteristics, lives them in their life, who walks according to this pattern, why would God say the one who does this shall never be moved? Is it because the person who does all these things has earned their place in heaven? No. No. And I want to make this absolutely clear. This psalm is not, it's not about earning your way into heaven. Jesus earned your way into God's presence and you draw near to God only by trusting in what he did for you through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we draw near to God. But the reason that the person who does these things will never be moved is that these things all demonstrate that faith. That faith in a Savior who is rock solid. That's, that faith in a Savior who will never move. The Apostle James says this in chapter 2 of the letter that he wrote. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I think you can almost put air quotes around that. That faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith that makes 
empty claims, even if they are biblically accurate claims, but has no outward working, has no actions that correspond to that claim, that's not a saving faith. That faith is dead. And that's what this psalm is about. It's not about earning eternal life with God. None of us could ever do that. It's about the external demonstration of our faith, our faith that we believe Jesus has earned eternal life on our behalf. Those who have a genuine, rock-solid hope of eternal life through faith in Jesus will have these external marks. Their lives will be marked with integrity. They will be marked by using their words to build up. They will be marked by honoring those who honor God and rejecting those who claim God's name and yet reject God. They will be marked by keeping promises, by being generous. And it's all because their hope is firmly fixed in Jesus. And so if these things mark you as one whose faith in Jesus is real, because Jesus is rock solid, you can be assured that you will never be moved. You can be sure that you are welcomed by God now and will one day have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore dwelling with God. And this morning we are going to take communion as we do each week. This communion time is a, is a time that is significant only, those, only for those who have this faith, who believe in Jesus, because this communion, it represents what Jesus has done for us. In these communion cups, we have a, a wafer that represents the body of Jesus. This is God himself who took on flesh so that he could live an obedient, perfectly righteous life and that he could die, that he could put that flesh on the cross having been tortured and die in our place, purchasing forgiveness from God and eternal life and every blessing that we will enjoy from God in this life and forevermore. That's what this wafer in the communion cup represents. And the juice that's in the cup, it represents the blood of Jesus that poured out to, to buy atonement for our sins, to purchase us for God. And so if you're not trusting in what Jesus has done, then this communion meal has no significance for you. And in fact, we believe the Bible is the word of God and the Bible indicates that those who don't trust in Jesus should not take communion. So this morning we ask on behalf of God that, that you not take communion if you don't have faith in Jesus. And so uh, the way that we do this here at Pioneer Ridge Church is that for those who should, you'll get up in just a few moments, you'll exit to the left, you'll come up to one of these tables, take a communion cup, head back around and enter on the right of your row, and for those who need um, gluten-free communion elements, those are over here in this far left, your far left table. Um, you can take that back to your seat. Pray with your family. 
Or if you're here alone, pray, thanking God for his redemption and take communion there. But if you're not trusting in Jesus, we ask that you not do that. And it's okay to just stay in your seat. Just let people walk by if you need to. But we would urge you to trust in Jesus. And we would love to talk with you about what that means. If, if you're unsure, if you have questions, um, we would invite you to fill out a connection card and drop it off in one of these boxes in the back. There's some cards back there if you don't see one in the seats around you. You can just grab one off the table back there, fill it out, and we would love to connect with you this week or just grab one of the pastors this morning before you leave. Um, we would love to talk with you. And I'll be down here in the front if anyone wants to pray during this communion time. But remember that we who are believers, as we take communion, we are worshiping Jesus because he, his life is seen in Psalm 15. And as I was studying this psalm this week, one of the things that stood out to me so beautifully is that above all others, Jesus is one who swore to his own hurt and did not change. He made an oath before time began that he would give his life to purchase a people for himself. And he kept that oath all the way to the point of torture and death on the cross. And so as you take communion this morning, for those who should, worship Jesus. Give him thanks and praise. Deepen your faith in him. Hold more tightly to him this morning. I'm going to pray, and then for those who should come, come to communion. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you that you are our complete Savior. That not only did you die to purchase our forgiveness from sin, but you also died so that your spirit would come and indwell us. And so that we would be changed to be more and more righteous, more like you. more like the person that we all long to be free from evil thoughts, evil deeds, evil words. So thank you for your spirit who empowers us, who changes us. That whatever is good in us is not from us, but it's a gift from you. It's by your grace. It's all of your grace. So we thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.